I'm glad to be with you, and I'm glad to be continuing in our series in the book of James, Born Again Behavior. Uh, we've been focusing primarily in chapter one, we've been kind of creeping through it, and uh, we've been focusing on how to respond to trials. And last Sunday, we learned that as believers, we must always evaluate ourselves by spiritual standards rather than material standards. Um, regardless of our socioeconomic status in life, whether we are poor or rich or in the middle, we mustn't lose sight of our true identity as children of God. Uh, we mustn't lose sight of what we have in Christ, all of the blessings and the inheritance that we have in Him, all of the joy. And we mustn't lose the humility that we experienced when we first got saved. In fact, that should be increasing and intensifying as we grow in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. And then lastly, we learned that we mustn't lose sight of the prize, which is not going to be given to us in this life, but in the life to come. And that's the crown of life. That's when we go to be with Jesus when we receive that. So those are some things that we must do in the midst of trials. And uh, we need to maintain that right focus or we're going to get, uh, we're just going to get demolished. And I've said this over the course of several weeks, but trials tend to be fraught with various temptations. You know, when you're in a trial, there's all sorts of little and, and sometimes big temptations that kind of pop up uh, that we're presented with. And one such uh, temptation that Christians often face is blaming God for our actual temptations. And, and when we give in to those temptations, we're even tempted to blame Him for the sin that we've committed. And, and this happens all the time. Um, for example, you know, just by way of example here, when we are going through a trial and we find ourselves compromising the Word of God and the will of God and even giving in to sin, we are tempted to put the blame for our situation, for our temptation. It's entirely on God. And what we usually say to ourselves is, well, it's it's ultimately, end of the, at the end of the day, it's God's fault for what I've done here. It's God's fault that I've given in to temptation and sin, because why? He put me in the trial with all of these temptations. This is what we actually think at times and say. And uh, it's a, a terrible occurrence when we put the blame for our temptations and sin on God. And we, and we justify our actions in these things when this happens. And we say, well, you know, if he hadn't put me in the situation, I wouldn't have given into it. Has anyone, can anyone resonate with what I'm saying here? We, we do, by default, blame our temptations, trials, and sins on God. We do it all the time. The human race has been doing this forever. Uh, the ancient Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria once said, when the mind has sinned and removed itself far from virtue... It lays the blame on divine causes. In other words, when we give in to sin, we tend to blame it on divine causes. Again, you put me in the trial with all these temptations. I gave into it. It's your fault. That's what we say. And blaming our temptations on God, it really does date all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the fall of man. When God confronted Adam for his sin, Adam replied, the woman whom you gave me, Right, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. 
So Adam wasn't even literally blaming his temptation and sin on Eve. He was blaming it on the God who gave him the woman, which is a terrible situation. And when God confronted Eve for her sin, how did Eve reply? The serpent deceived me and I ate. And you can see this in Genesis 3, 12 through 13. Well, the question I would ask Eve is, who created the serpent? In other words, what Eve is saying is the serpent that you created because you created all things, he led me astray. Again, she's blaming God for her temptation and sin. The first couple blamed God for their temptation. And, and literally, fallen humanity has been doing it ever since. We have been doing this ever since the fall in Genesis 3. Someone once said, and I don't know who wrote this, but it's wise, to err is human. To blame it on the divine is even more human, right? To blame it on God for what we're doing is even more human than just an error. I think that's very wise. And blaming the gods, because in this context of this letter, you know, there were gods, there were a, a pantheon of Greco-Roman gods that people worshipped, but blaming the gods was a typical pagan mindset in biblical times because their gods were capricious and vengeful and soap opera deities who taunted and tempted humanity. Have you ever studied uh, Greek mythology? These gods are shysters, and, and I mean, they are, they're bad. I mean, really what they do is they reflect the humans that created them. They're into adultery and fornication and all of these sorts of things. They were terrible false deities, but people would blame those false deities for their temptation and sin. And Jewish believers who had been dispersed throughout pagan cities because of persecution, they weren't immune to this mindset. They were impacted by this mindset, which was very prevalent in, in the days where James wrote this. And sadly, many within the Messianic community James wrote to had succumbed to this way of thinking, this mindset, and they were now blaming God for their temptations. They were blaming him for their temptations and even blaming him for their, for their sins. In the next section, James corrects them by describing two things, two things. He describes the origin of temptation, where it actually comes from, and then he describes the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 13 through 18. So we'll pick it up at verse 13. That's where we left off last Sunday. You guys ready? Listen to what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And he says, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Stop right there. James comes right, I mean, you can already detect there's a problem in this congregation of blaming God, right? Why else does he say this? But he comes right out of the gate with both barrels firing, right? Boom, boom, double shotgun blast. He begins by stating very clearly that no one can blame God for, them temp for their temptations because God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt people to commit evil. This is what he has said here. And the phrase, we'll just break down some of the phrasing and words. The phrase cannot be tempted is aperistos. Aperistos in Greek, and it only appears here in the New Testament. You won't find it in other places in the New Testament. And, and it carries this 
incredible idea of, of being impervious to evil. Um, it carries the idea of being invincible against evil assaults. Okay, and, and that is precisely who God is. God is impervious to evil. God is invincible against evil assault. No evil can prevail over him. He doesn't have a leaning toward evil or anything like that at all. Why? Well, the Bible tells us over and over and over why, and it's primarily because God is holy. God is holy, which means that he is completely set apart from evil completely set apart from it. And I like what MacArthur wrote at this point. He said, God and evil exist in two distinct realms that never meet. He has no vulnerability to evil and is utterly impregnable to its onslaughts. He is aware of evil, but untouched by it, like a sunbeam shining on a dump is untouched by the trash. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. God is that separated from evil. He doesn't, he's not even in, in the same area in which evil exists, in a sense. Of course, we know that when Christ came into the world, God in the flesh, he definitely came into an evil realm. But for the most part, think of God as being just totally holy and separated from evil, oh, totally aware of it, but not evil himself or impacted by it. When Isaiah had a vision of God sitting on his sovereign throne, he saw seraphim, what are seraphim angels, hovering overhead. And what were they declaring? Evil, evil, evil? Heavens, no. They were declaring holy, 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 the repetition of his holiness. Uh, What are they communicating? That he is holy beyond anything else in creation. He's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. There's an intensifying there in the declaration. And they are proclaiming his absolute out-of-this-world holiness. He is the Lord of hosts, they said. And they said the whole earth is full of his glory. In Exodus 15, 11, It says, um, and of course, there were many false gods in these days, and that's why you see stuff like this in Scripture. But it says, who is like you, speaking of the true God, who is like you among the gods, lower G, right? O Lord, glorious in holiness, glorious in your holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. There's another verse that uh, captures the holiness of God completely set apart and at a level of holiness that no one else is, including all of the false deities that man had been creating since day one. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God is pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Again, what are we talking about here? His holiness, separated from evil, can't stand the sight of sin and wickedness, can't even look upon it. Now, if God is holy, set apart from all evil, and pure, and cannot stand the sight of evil, how could he possibly tempt people to commit evil, to sin? Think of it logically. If he's completely apart from it, and perfectly holy in nature, and doesn't have any kind of leaning to holy, can't even uh, leaning to sin, can't even look upon sin, can't even look upon evil, how could he possibly be the one who's tempting people to commit evil? He can't be. He can't be. Hughes wrote, God has never tempted us to sin because he cannot, exclamation point. It is morally impossible, he says, 
This is extremely important because the human inclination from the Garden of Eden to this day is to consciously or at least subconsciously blame God and thus try to palliate our own feelings of guilt. I think that's a great explanation behind what we do. Now, a a great question arises here if you're astute and you study the Word or read the Word and you're familiar with certain passages. If God does not tempt us to evil, or tempt us to... Uh, if he doesn't tempt us at all, if he doesn't tempt us, right, that's what we're talking about, then why did Jesus tell us to pray for God not to lead us into temptation? Did that come to mind to anyone here? You, you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, right? It says, lead us not into temptation, you know, keep us from the evil one. So, so if, if, if that is true, if we're, if we're to pray to God not to lead us into temptation, and yet God can't literally do that, then are we seeing a contradiction uh, between, say, James 1.13 and Matthew 6.13, where we see the Lord's Prayer? Is there a contradiction here? Is there a discrepancy? What is going on here? Why would Jesus tell us and teach us to pray in this way? Well, let me help unpack it for you. The Greek word tempted is parazo, and it really has two meanings in the New Testament. It can mean to try, like to test someone, to try someone. And it can mean to entice, to entice someone to action. So parazo can mean to try or to entice, right? And we see the word tempted here, and that's parazo. Now, here's the deal. God can lead us into trials fraught with temptation so that we will be parazo, tried, okay? God can lead us into trials, put us in trials where they are fraught with temptations, for the purpose of testing, for the purpose of trying. That is completely legit. That does not confound this scripture. That does not place the blame of our temptations on God one bit. That can happen. And what does, as we've learned from this text already, what does the trying of our faith, the testing of our faith produce? Steadfastness, right? Verse 3. Okay, and I, and I want, you, want you to think of this amazing example of how God can lead us into a trial where there are temptations. He doesn't create the temptations and bring us into them, per se, by his own hand, but they're in the trial. Think of Jesus being led by whom? The Holy Spirit, by God, into the wilderness to be what? Perazzo. Enticed to sin? Absolutely not. To be tried to be tested by whom? The devil. How long did this go on? 40 days, right? A long time. And what happened? What was the outcome? He was tempted and tested by the devil over and over. Not enticed to sin, because that would be, I, I, that would be out of bounds here. He was being tested. God was put him in the garden with Satan so that he could be tested. But what was the initial outcome there? What did he do? He defeated Satan with the very word of God. He cited Deuteronomy over and over and over. And he was victorious. He did what the first Adam failed to do in the, in the garden. In the wilderness, Jesus prevailed. He defeated the devil's onslaughts, consistent onslaughts. And, and, and we only read about like one temptation there, like when the devil told him to turn rocks into bread and all that. But he was tempted for 40 days. So that we, we see one account of that, but the devil kept coming and doing this over and over. There's a repetition. But he defeated him. He beat him. He was victorious, and he left the wilderness to what? Begin his public ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
But God, see, so God can put you in a trial that is fraught with temptation to test and to try you for the purpose of steadfastness and leading you to maturation or maturity, right? He can do that, but it's very important that we understand the distinction here with the same Greek word, God will never, parazo, entice us to sin. There's the difference. He will never entice us to sin. And Spurgeon puts great clarity on this. He says, for God to tempt in the sense of enticing to sin is inconsistent with his nature. It just goes against his holiness and altogether contrary to his known character. But for God to lead us into those conflicts with evil with which we call temptations is not only possible, but usual. It's common for God to put us in trials where there are temptations. And he says, full often, the great captain of salvation, these are the kind of terms that that Spurgeon always used, I love it. Full often, the great captain of our salvation leads us by his providence to battlefields where we must face the fell array of evil and conquer through the blood of the Lamb. And this leading into temptation is by divine grace overruled for our good, since by being tempted we grow strong in grace and patience. That's a great expert-level explanation. God will lead believers into trials in which temptation can occur, not to solicit them to sin, but to try them and to move them to greater steadfastness. And so what are we actually praying for when we pray the Lord's Prayer? What does that mean? We're asking Him not to lead us into temptation, right? Well, I can give you some explanation here. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and ask God not to lead us into temptation, we are asking Him to deliver us from temptations that are beyond our maturity, that are beyond our resolve. Why? So that we will not sin against Him. We are, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and ask Him not to lead, we are literally acknowledging our utter weakness before God and saying, please don't lead me into anything that, that might result in me sinning against you. We are asking God not to lead us into something so we won't sin against him. That's how much we love him. We don't want to sin against him. And we're saying, hey, if it's at all possible, if it's at all possible, keep me from certain temptations that you know I'll fail. I don't want to go into those sorts of things. We are essentially pleading for God to deliver us in moments of weakness. Why? So that we will not sin against him. Doddridge's paraphrase of that part of the Lord's Prayer, is, is, I think, is really good. Um, when we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, we are essentially saying, and this is his quote, do not bring us into circumstances of pressing temptation, lest our virtue should be vanquished and our souls endangered by them. But if we must thus be tried, do thou graciously rescue us from the power of the evil one. I think that's really good. I think that's what we're essentially asking for when we pray that there. Now, the question, another question arises, will God answer our prayer and deliver us from those sorts of temptations and evil in those moments, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're trained and taught by Jesus to ask for his help in these instances and to deliver us. Will he do it? Absolutely! Have you read 1 Corinthians 10, 13b? What does it say? God is faithful, and he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide what? The way of escape that we may be able to endure it. You see that? So 
Jesus tells us to pray for that, and then Jesus tells us again through Paul's writings that God will answer the prayer and deliver you. Now, what does that mean? That means that if we experience temptation in the middle of a trial and give into it, it's not because we weren't given a way of escape. The responsibility is entirely upon us. We chose to give into that temptation. We chose to fulfill that evil desire. We chose to sin, and the responsibility is ours because God says, pray to me, I'll give you a way out. I will give you a way of escape. So the responsibility is on us. So when we go through trials and experience temptation, we mustn't blame God for those temptations or blame Him for our failure to overcome them. We just can't do it. That's evil. That's blasphemous. God may try us, but He will never tempt us, never entice us to sin against Him. And, and this is literally against his holy nature. It's against his personhood. He would just never, ever, ever do that. He is not involved in any kind of evil at all. Um, evil cannot promote even the slightest appealing tug in the heart of God. Evil is, is utterly repugnant and abhorrent to God. He despises evil. He hates evil. He is holy. He can't stand it. He doesn't come anywhere near it. In the next line, James describes the origin of temptation, literally where it comes from. Now we can move to verse 14. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay, is this clear? All right. Verse 14, James continues by saying, but each person, listen to this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Stop right there. Boom. There it is. Drop the mic. James, literally, what is he telling us? He's literally telling us that temptation comes from within us. If you think that temptation is on the outside of you, you are wrong. It comes from within. There are things on the outside that we see that can spur that on, that can fuel it. But this is a problem that comes from within. Our sinful nature generates temptation based on our evil desires. It just comes from within, right out of it. It doesn't come from God, it comes from within. Blomberg calls temptations inner longings that busily work to pull us away from the Lord. I think that's a good description. Douglas Moo has a good one as well. He calls temptations an inner impulse to sin. Again, it's on the inside Temptation results from our own evil desires. Our evil desires produce temptations. This pull toward doing things that are illicit and against God. Where do these evil desires come from? They come from our what? Our fallen, sinful nature, our human depravity. You know, even as, as saved Christians, I, I get it, we're given a new nature um, and we're given the Holy Spirit, but there is a residual of the old man, the old woman there, the old self. And that old self has evil desires, and those evil desires perpetuate temptations. That's where this stuff comes from. Temptations are produced through our evil desires, and our evil desires come from our fallen sinful nature, our depravity. They come from our uh, as Jeremiah 17.9 puts it, what? Deceitful hearts. 
The heart is wicked above all else, he says. Our deceitful hearts. Even though we've been given a new heart, there's residual of the old heart still there. The old man. Hughes wrote, the source, just plainly, the source of temptation is not God. Or even the devil, because you hear a lot of that today, don't you? Well, the devil made me do it. No. No, the devil did not make you do that. Your evil desires desired to do that. The source of temptation is not God or even the devil, because the devil becomes a scapegoat for us. He says, but man's own sinful heart. Man's own sinful heart is here. Now let's take a look at some of the phrases here, a little closer look here. I want you to notice some things here. He says, each person, each person. That emphasizes the universality of temptation. Each person, meaning every person. Every person. Temptation is, is literally common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's common to man. No person, including the most spiritually mature Christian, can escape it. Okay? Temptation is common to all of us. It's common to all of us. We all have to deal with it. We're all tempted because we're all fallen. Um, another phrase here, is tempted. Is tempted. Uh, that's a present tense. It underscores the ongoing nature of temptation. What does that mean? It's just perpetual. It keeps going and going and going. If you've ever asked the question, Where will it, when will the temptations go? They won't as long as you're breathing or until Jesus comes back. They just keep coming and coming and coming. I think Spurgeon said it well. I don't have it written in my script, so don't quote me verbatim, but he said something like, if you, if you experience um, uh, continuous temptation, pray continuously. That's his antidote. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. We're going to have to deal with temptation until we go to be with the Lord or until he comes here, until he comes here. Either way, it's something that we have to deal with. And I tell you, I've asked some of the old timers, you know, in my life, hey, when, when you know, does that particular thing that us guys wrestle with, that temptation, does that ever go away with? And you can ask a 75-year-old man. He's like, nope. It's like, Aah! that doesn't go away? No, it doesn't. You have to deal with it all the way up to the... It's like, oh, man. They don't go away. Don't matter how old you are. It just doesn't matter. Now, did James have any kind of specific temptation in mind here? Yeah, the text is universal. It covers all of them, but he does have something in mind here. Remember our context, the poor within the messianic community were being oppressed by the rich, and they were suffering, suffering because of this. They were suffering greatly economically, right? What happened? They desired revenge and were tempted to use violence against their oppressors. <laughs> That's the specific kind of temptation here. It's a, it's a temptation to retaliate or to exercise God's judgment, you know, to bring about vengeance when the Lord clearly said, vengeance is mine, not yours. So they had this kind of evil desire to get revenge, and that evil desire produced within them a strong temptation to use violence to lash out against them. Um, just, you could slip over to chapter 4, verse 2a. This is what James says in response to them. You desire and do not have, so what? You murder! Well, were they actually killing people here? No, I think they were killing them in their hearts. You know what? That guy took my money. I'm going to kill him. I want to kill him. I, or saying, I hate him, and I'd like to beat him up. Well, that's murder in the heart. I don't think they were literally killing people, but James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You think murderous thoughts toward those who have wronged you or anyone else. And he says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you do what? Fight and quarrel. Violence. 
So it's not even that they were just tempted to commit violence. They were actually doing it. They were retaliating. They were giving in to this temptation. And then what were they doing? Blaming God. Why? Because God put them in the trial. I punched Joe because he took my money, and you put me in the trial where he would take my money, and that temptation arose, and now it's your fault, God, that I punched him. This is what they were saying to themselves. I don't think there was a guy named Joe, but you know what I mean. This is what they were doing. Let's talk about the key to overcoming temptation for a moment. This is just a side note. Some will tell you that the key to overcoming temptation is avoidance. Okay? Avoidance meaning, you know, disconnect yourself and stay away from things that seem to awaken your evil desires and bring temptation. They say that's the key to overcoming temptation. And I would say the Bible says very clearly, you know, do not put evil things before you. So there is wisdom in Scripture that says we need to, Christians need to be about a level of avoidance. There's wisdom in that, but that is not the key to overcoming temptation. If it were, it would have proved to be true for countless monks who disconnected themselves from society and went and lived in a monastery and still were terrible sinners. Just read anything that Martin Luther wrote. You can disconnect yourself and avoid all these things all you want, but no matter what you do or where you go, guess who's still there? You. And all you need to be tempted is you. You don't need imagery on the screen. You don't need movie stuff. You don't need magazines. You don't need any of that to be tempted. All you need to do is be cognizant, awake, aware. I'm tempted in my dreams. Anyone else can relate to that? You wake up going, whoa, where did that come from? And the wife's like, go sleep on the couch. <laughs> you just elbowed me in the face, you know? You, you, the disconnect idea, the avoidance idea, it's good. Scripture says, put no evil thing before your eyes. There's wisdom in that, but that's not enough. That's not enough. So what is the key? What is the key to overcoming temptation. Well, we already heard from Spurgeon who said, if you're tempted much, pray much. So prayer can help you with that. We know that if you seek God in those moments for a way of escape, he will provide it. So that's, that's key. But I think there's an even greater key. The key to overcoming temptation is not avoidance. The key to overcoming temptation is having our minds renewed by the word of God. That's the key. When our minds are renewed, what happens? Our desires are renewed. What I'm telling you this morning is inner transformation is the key. Do you know how to vanquish temptation? Become a godly person with godly thoughts and godly desires. And only the Word of God can do that. That is the power of the Word of God the scripture applied through the Holy Spirit. It's transformative. It changes the way we think and respond to things. It changes our desires. The word of God can take evil desires that are in us and transform them and make them holy desires. Will it do it perfectly in this life? No, we have to deal with temptation and the evil that we have, but it can help. It is transformative. It will change you. So, when your desires become less and less evil and more holy, when you begin to desire the things that God desires rather than the things the flesh desire, what happens? Temptations begin to disappear. 
temptations cease to be temptations. Do you understand what I'm telling you? We've got to be transformed by the Word, family. That's, that's where the power is. And when the inner man is renewed and transformed, the evil desires become holy desires. Not perfectly in this life, but you can't... Ex- Anybody in this room who's been a Christian for more than five years, please, I think you can testify to this. If you've been a Christian for like maybe five years or maybe even one year, aren't your desires and temptations a little bit different from when you first started? If they're not, you're not saved. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you say. If you're no different from the point of impact to today, even if it was six months, even if it was 30 days, you're not new. You're not a new person. You haven't been regenerated. It is impossible to stay the same as a truly born-again person. Now, the growth trajectory for every believer is different. But you can't possibly be a truly saved, born-again person and 10 years later be the same person. You're going to be a little bit different, maybe vastly different. And the temptations that you deal with might even be different. And the sins that you give into should be different. The days of adultery should be gone. You shouldn't be doing those things anymore. You'll be wrestling with different sins and temptations as you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what impacts that trajectory, that sanctification? Your discipline in the means of grace. You engaging in prayer. You fellowshipping with godly people. You you participating in the two sacraments that we have baptism and communion and you and you being in the word of God and I'm not talking about just Sundays when you come listen to a message you got to be in the word of God yourself but there is power in the word and there is transforming power and sanctifying power in the word if you struggle with great temptation your desires need to be transformed by the word of God. You're not getting enough time into the word of God. That's the key. The word of God is the key. Developing that discipline to be in the word. God aims to transform us and change us, and that's what we must do. I still say avoidance is a good thing because the scripture tells us to do it, doesn't it, Mary? You and I have talked about that. Let no evil thing be before your eyes. That's Psalm 101, verse 3. That's an important verse. So we need to come at it with a multifaceted attack, right? Keep those things away from us if we can. And sometimes they just come and you can't control them. But work on the inner man, the inner woman. That's the key. Develop the desires of God in you through the word of God. When we desire the things of God, he will give us the desires of our hearts, it says in the psalm. So amen to that. That's the key to overcoming temptation, I think. And, and do we all fail at that? Absolutely. But it is the key, and that's what we must do. We must also note something here very important. I think there's a mistake here among Christians. We have to note that temptation in and of itself is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Giving in to temptation is sin. Okay? This is important, a very important distinction, because if you are a Christian, you're a bona fide Christian, and you wrestle with a lot of temptation, you're always tempted and stuff. Yeah, you need to work on your inner man, no doubt. But you could be led to believe that you're sinning all the time when you're not actually giving in to that temptation. Okay? Just because you're being tempted doesn't mean you're sinning. If you give in to the temptation every time it comes, then you're sinning. 
So temptation isn't in and of itself a sin. It's the giving into it that it becomes sin, right? When we give into it, it becomes sin. You gotta understand this difference. You know, as a pastor, I'm greatly tempted, and it's not, you know, I, I'm tempted with a, a plethora of things, and sometimes they're not the exact same things that other believers are tempted with. You know, I'm tempted to um, uh, evaluate the church here and the growth based on my performance, which is sinful. I'm, I'm tempted to compare myself to other pastors and other churches. That's sinful. My temptations might be a little different than yours, but they're there, and they're pretty consistent. But if I don't give in to them and go, ah, oh, I'm not sinning. If I flee from temptation, I have not sinned. I've done the, the Lord's will. I think um, sensitive Christians need to know this difference here. Sensitive Christians, you know, those who, who may feel that their continuing experience with temptation demonstrates that they are somehow out of fellowship with the Lord. It's not true. As we develop more and more of the Christian mind through the Word of God, the frequency and power of temptation should grow less. But as I said earlier, temptation will still be part of our experience throughout our lifetime. It will. Being tempted is common to man. It's normal, especially for believers. Giving in to it is sin. Avoiding it or even having the temptation is not sin. Know the difference. I like what Douglas Moo wrote here. He said, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. In other words, you prove to be a maturing Christian as you avoid and stay away from temptation, not as you're tempted, because being tempted, again, is common and normal. Giving in to it shows immaturity. Huge difference. Next a set of words, lured and enticed. Uh, they come from a pair of Greek verbs, Exelco deliazo. Sounds like a Harry Potter thing, you know what I mean? Exelco deliazo. Turned him into a cricket. Uh, they're two Greek words. You combine them. They were commonly used in those days um, as a fishing metaphor or to describe fishing, okay? Lured and enticed. They're fishing terms. The idea is that the bait on a fisherman's hook would entice the fish. And once hooked, what? The fish would be what? Lured away, right? Lured away. And in, I think some of your translations, it probably says dragged away. And I like that because I've fished before and I tend to drag my fish to the boat. I want to make sure they're in there, you know? And I lose them all the time because I'm not setting the hook right. Another uh, word here, the word desire. That's epithemia in Greek. And it refers to a deep, strong longing of any kind. So it's kind of a universal word. You can, you, can, you can be desiring God's presence as the, as, you know, you can desire the things of the Lord as the deer pants for water, uh, Psalm, uh, one of the Psalms. That's, what Psalm is that? So there's, you can have good desires, but you can also have bad desires. And in this context, it reflects bad desires. Um, and it, sometimes in the New Testament, this word carries with it a sexual connotation, a desiring for a woman, a desiring for a man or something like that that's illicit, that's out of bounds. That kind of temptation, sometimes it refers to that, but here it refers more in a general sense to any human longing for which God has prohibited. So this is a desire for evil things, things that cater to the flesh, sinful things. So let's just uh, recap before we move to the next set of uh, to the next verse. Where does temptation originate? Where does it come from? Does it come from God? No. 
No, it doesn't come from God. It originates in us. It springs forth from our desires, our evil desires. And temptations are, as we just read with the lured enticed phrasing, temptations are meant to entice us like fish bait, like, you know, like a fish to bait. And if we give in to them, we are lured away into sin like a fish is lured away by a fisherman. That's the metaphor he's given us. I like, again, what Philo said here. Um, he had some great wisdom pertaining to these things. He says, all the wars of the Greeks and barbarians between themselves or against each other are sprung from one source, desire. <laughs> the desire for more money, the desire for more glory, or the desire for more pleasure. That's what Philo said. That's right on the money. Wars are started here, long before combat ever takes place. And what, what spurns those wars on? Those evil desires and those temptations and lusts for more power, control, whatever it is that that person is after. That is behind it all. And that is, unfortunately, all of us, right? Because we have the sinful nature. It's sad. Christ is good. In the next line, James uses the reproductive process to describe the cycle of sin. We can move to verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James tells us that when our evil desires are acted upon, right, when we give in to temptation, that's when sin occurs. And what does sin do? It brings what? Death, right? I think, uh, you know, James might have had something in mind like Romans 6.23. I don't know if he was even connected to that passage at this point when he wrote this, but it says very clearly the same thing that James has said. The wages of sin is death, right? If, if, uh, if sin was an employer, it pays you in the wage of death. Sin brings death. That's just all there is to it. It's never produced anything but spiritual and physical death. Yet, if we have repented and put our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, our sins have been forgiven and we have been saved from spiritual and eternal death, right? That's the gospel. So physical death is the only kind of death believers have to deal with unless Jesus returns before we die. And I'm just making some broader points here about the importance of sin because we tend to not take it very seriously as believers. And we need to take it just as seriously as we did when we first got saved. Um, another point that I would make here is that you know, we have to deal with physical death. I don't have to deal with eternal death. I don't have to deal with spiritual death. Christ has overcome those things for me, but I have to deal with physical death. But is it actually physical death that believers experience? The New Testament doesn't call it that. It calls it sleep over and over and over. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is a great passage to see that. It's not soul sleep, uh, like seventh days tell us, because our souls go to be with Jesus, right? To be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Um, it is sleep in that our bodies lie dormant in a tomb awaiting the return of Jesus and the resurrection of his people. So that's the sleep that our bodies are experiencing. But it's also possible for believers, and this is where the importance of, of sin comes in. It's also possible for believers to experience physical death as a severe form of discipline 
from God if they persist in unrepentant sin. Do you understand what I've told you? What I've just told you is that God can put his people, one of his sheep, to physical death if they persist in sin and refuse to repent. Now, what I've just said is so incongruent, doesn't line up at all with the, you know, my little pony preaching you hear today with all the grace and love. We say that because Jesus came, God doesn't do that anymore. Well, talk to Ananias and Sapphira. Talk to the Corinthian believers who had turned communion into a love fest where they were getting drunk and engaging in debauchery. Ask those ones who were put to death, who got sick and then died because of that sin. The New Testament has Old Testament examples of the people of God being, being put to death by God. Has God changed? No. No, he hasn't. See, what James is telling us here is that sin leads to death. It always does, period. You will die one day because of sin. Sin kills us physically. doesn't mean you'll, you're actually going to be committing sin as you die. I'm not talking about that. That can happen. I'm talking about... Our bodies are impacted by sin, and we only live a certain amount of time because of sin. We're going to die. So we have to deal with that. James is telling us that, but he's also warning these people who are, who are sinning by blaming God for their temptation. Sin leads to death, even death at the hand of a holy God. It is not beyond God to put an end to the shenanigans of one of his children if they persist in sin, he can take you out of this world. Now, I, I, I agree with Paul. It's far better to be with the Lord than it is to be here. But what a way to go out. That's not a legacy. That's a bad legacy. I think there's a hint of that here in what James is saying, because sin produces death. It produces death. We need to take sin seriously, especially our own. Because we do, as Christians, tend to take the sins of others very serious, don't we? Especially when they sin against us. Well, that's fine and dandy. How serious do you take your own sin? That's a great question. If we took our own personal sin as seriously as we took the sins of others, boy, well, that would be transformative, wouldn't it? That'd be different. We'd be living differently because we sure hate the sin of others, right? But how much do we hate our own sin? We are to be killing sin not allowing sin to kill us. That's a hybrid of Owen's quote. We are to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. It is not beyond God to put a child of his under such severe discipline to take them right out of this world. Do I fear that? Yeah, I do. I do. Do I fear where I'll land? No. But I certainly wouldn't want to go out that way. And, and this, is, this is, you might think, well, there's just no way God would do that. That's not loving. I think it's actually extreme mercy. It's, ex, it's an extreme form. It's discipline, yeah, but, it's, but God disciplines those whom he loves. And if he has to exercise that highest level of discipline, which is to take you out of here, it's still out of love. He knows what he's preventing you from doing and making much worse in life because unrepentant sin wreaks havoc in families and everywhere else, right? He knows what's best. So it's, it's, 
It doesn't sound like a loving thing to do, but I think it's very, very loving. It's very merciful to take a wayward believer out who is causing a lot of problems and damage. That heaven forbid we would give him reason or put God to the test, which is never wise. Why would we do that? We have a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit. We can overcome temptation. We can flee from it and we can be transformed through the word. But it can happen. We need to be very sober-minded when it comes to sin, especially our own. I like what um, George Stulak did in his commentary. He shows how there are two parallel options to the same set of circumstances in this text. In the first instance, we understand the trial in terms of testing, which leads to steadfastness and maturity, right? Verses 2 through 4, that's what we first learned. In the second, we experience the same trial, not as a test, but as a temptation. And what does temptation lead to when we give into it? Sin and death, right? Verses 13 through 15. So you can look at your trial as one consistent temptation that you're going to give into and knowing that sin leads to death, or you can look at it as a type of testing where you can actually have joy knowing that you're going to be, you know, that God is going to make you more steadfast through it and bring you to maturity. I love those two parallel options that are represented in the totality of this text. How are we going to look at the situation that we're in? Just one consistent temptation that we give into over and over while bringing death into our lives? Or is it a trial that's meant for our good? That leads to steadfastness and maturity. James warns against the second option here in this text. That's what he's doing. Don't do that. Let's move to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, he says. James basically hits pause on his apologetic to warn his audience about deception. Deceived is... Planal in Greek, and it means to be led astray. It is used in 2 Timothy 3.13 in reference to evil imposters who are deceived and going around deceiving others. So in that context, it refers to false teachers. And it is used in 2 John 1.7 in reference to deceivers who have gone out into the world denying the incarnation and physical body of Jesus Christ. Right? That's another form of false teacher. They are deceivers, and they were later given the title docetists. Docetists denied the importance of physical matter. The Gnostics came after them. You may not know this, but Islam is a docetistic kind of religion. It says that Christ went to the cross, but it wasn't his physical form there. That's denying of the physical. That's docetism. Notice how James referred to his readers as my beloved brothers. Look at that. Beloved is... Um, Agapitos in Greek, and it means dear brothers or dear, and then brothers is adelphos. That's a common word that we keep seeing here over and over when we see brothers. It's common, the common Greek word for brother in the New Testament. It is used, usually used in reference to brothers in Christ. This is the meaning here, and what is he doing? He is reaffirming for us the idea that his letter was written to fellow believers. That's who it was written to, adelphos, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, the verse could be rendered, do not be led astray, my dear brother, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, believers, is how it could be rendered. What deception was James warning his readers against here, right? He says, do not be deceived. Be careful with that. Well, he did not want his readers to be deceived about what he has said concerning God, temptation, and sin in verses 13 through 15. Don't be deceived by this, he's telling them. Those temptations don't come from God. 
They come from within you. They come from your evil desires. So don't be deceived about that. And he doesn't want them to be deceived about what he was about to say concerning God's goodness and gifts in verses 17 through 18. So I want you to be clear-minded about these things, people, is what he's saying. It was imperative that they understand and obey his corrections here in the text because if they continued to sin against God by blaming him for their own evil desires and temptations, what would happen? The divine rod of discipline would fall upon them, possibly with lethal force. Again, it's not beyond God to discipline to the level of death. So this is a a strong warning to them to stop blaming God for their temptation and sin. It's a very, very dangerous thing to do. In the next line, James literally drives a nail straight through the heart of this blasphemous ideology that we've been discussing. Let's move to 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What a statement. James describes precisely what comes down from God. Temptation, sin, no. He's already said no, 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 no. He does not tempt anyone. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone to commit it. No. What comes down from God? Every good gift and every perfect gift is what he says. What would be an example of a good gift? What would be an example of a a perfect gift from God? Well, what did he beseech them to pursue from God in verse 5? Divine wisdom. That is a good gift from God. That is a perfect gift from God, right? That's what God gives, good things that will help you live for him and bring him glory. He doesn't give you things that won't help you do that. He gives you good things that will help you accomplish that high calling on your life. The present uh, uh, participle, coming down, that phrase describes an unending succession of good gifts. So God not only gives good gifts and perfect gifts to his people, but he keeps giving them over and over and over. He never stops giving them. Never. And unlike Santa... He doesn't withhold his gifts when we are bad and we make it on the naughty list. He doesn't. I I can tell you that there have been times where I have been rebellious and sinful toward God and I have still had a full stomach and a roof over my head and the love of a family. He consistently gives good even when we're not good. He does. Now, we don't rejoice in that because we don't, want to be, we don't want to be unpleasing to him. But we've got to know that his, his good gifts and his goodness toward us is not based on our performance. It isn't. If it were based on our performance, then I would probably get one good thing from him once every few months. Right? It's not based on that. He's not like, yo-ho-ho, Santa. He's not. Got to rename Santa Satan. Because that's what Satan has everyone believing that our God only gives to those who help themselves, that our God only gives to those who make it on his list through all their goodness. We are not good. We have evil desires. We are tempted at all times by those evil desires, and we give in to them at all times. We deserve destruction. 
And yet he gives good and perfect gifts to his people. He is so far beyond the word good. That's the best we can do. He's good, and he's good all the time. What a great phrase, but it falls vastly short of how good he is. He is beyond. God does not withhold his gifts when we are bad. In those instances, he, he gives us the good gift of divine discipline because he loves us. Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12.6, which is a reiteration of that. The title, Father of Lights, I love that title. Isn't that a beautiful title for God? What can that possibly mean? Have you ever even seen that anywhere else in Scripture? Father of lights. What beauty. It refers to four things. First, it refers to God as creator. Right? God created the lights of heaven, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, our solar system, every galaxy, everything that's out there in the vast beyond and unknown. He has created this vast universe. He has created all of that. And not only did he create all of it, he declared all of it to be what? Good. Genesis 1, 14 through 18. Hughes wrote, God's goodness is at the center of what we see in God's handiwork. If you doubt God's goodness, gaze upon the sun. Well, don't look at that because you're going to burn your retinas out. Gaze upon the moon. Gaze upon the stars at night. Look at, what the, look at the lights that the Father of lights has created. The very lights that, that endless seamen and, and, and sailors have used to, to go across these vast seas on our planet. It refers to God as creator. He is the Father of lights because he has created all lights. Second, it refers to God's activity, his activity in his showering good gifts on his people. Again, he does, there's a plurality here. He, keeps, he gives us a lot of good gifts, and then there's a consistency to it. He keeps giving good gifts. He does. Even when you feel like you don't have much. Remember, he's writing to poor people. People who were swindled. But they had a treasure in Christ. Third, it refers to God's essential nature as light into his moral goodness. He is the father of lights. He is the father of light and truth and purity and perfection and moral perfection. His moral goodness and light is reflected in that title. And fourth, it refers to God's immutability. That's his unchangingness. As lights shine in the, in the vast skies day after day and night after night, God's goodness so shines. It never stops shining. God is good all the time. He can never be anything but good all the time. 
God is immutable, unchanging. And therefore, His goodness is what? Immutable, unchanging. God's goodness shines on His people like a never-ending noonday sun without what variation or shadow due to change. What does the noonday sun do? It shines straight down on us. It hits us perfectly. And that's what His goodness does. And I'll tell you what, the next verse is so exciting as we begin to wrap up. In this next line, the last line, James gives the preeminent example of God's goodness by describing His greatest gift to us. This is His best best gift to his people that we see in this next line. Verse 18, of his own will. That makes me tremble. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You could preach a thousand sermons on that verse and barely scratch the surface of the depth of doctrinal truth that's there. What gift, what best gift from God did James describe here? This is the gift of sovereign regeneration. This is the gift of being born again. This is the gift of sovereign grace bestowed upon unworthy sinners. Notice how it says it here. Notice how it's described. God of his own will, of his own will, of his own vast, immeasurable goodness, of his own sovereign power brought us forth, which basically means brought us to life, brought us to spiritual life. How? By the word of truth. What is the word of truth? The word of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a common misconception among Christians today. They think that they were born again when they exercised their free will and believed in Jesus. Well, you may believe that, and I did it one time, but the Bible doesn't teach this. Verse 18 says very clearly that God causes sinners to be born again according to his will, not ours, doesn't it? This is also stated lucidly clear in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, which says the children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God who caused you by his sovereign grace and power to be born again. What did you do with that? All you did was respond to it with open arms. Salvation is a gift of God. Romans 6.23b and Ephesians 2.8, which begins for us in time and space, you know, in our time and space, when what? We are born again. That's when it begins for us. 
Ephesians 2, 5, 1 Peter 1, 23. How? According to the will of God. Verse 18, right here in our text. John 1, 12 and 13. How? Again, by the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 18. Romans 10, 17. How does faith come? By what? The hearing of the word. That's what he's saying. And this hearing of the word and being brought to this born-again status through the word of truth, the Holy Spirit has a role in that, right? He brings us to life and causes us to be born again. That is God doing it. Ezekiel 37, verse 14, and John 3, verses 3 through 8. And what is James really telling us here? What he's telling us here is that God's good and perfect gifts lead to eternal life, the exact opposite of the results of temptation and sin. That's what he's teaching us here. And when we're tempted to think that God is causing our temptation and leading us into sin, no, God has caused you to be born again. And God is giving you good and perfect gifts. Lastly, notice quickly here the purpose of sovereign regeneration. It's listed at the end of the verse. The purpose for us being born again right in the second half of 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what James tells us. In Scripture, the term first fruits usually refers to the best cattle of a flock or to the best crops of a field or to the best gift we can offer to God when we give back to him, right? We give up the first fruits. That's the best that we can give back to him. That's what it generally reflects in scripture. But here, it doesn't refer to our best. It refers to God's best. What or who is God's best? God's best are those whom he has caused to be born again, his people, all true believers. All true believers, all true Christians, we, in other words, we are his best. If we are in Christ, we are God's best. We are his first fruits. That's what he's saying here. So my question to you as we close is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Has that happened for you? Are you among God's people? Are you among God's best? Are you among God's first fruits? If so, I say rejoice because God has given you his greatest gift, right? What? The new birth. What a gift. Rejoice that he in eternity past chose to give that to you. And when you find yourself in trials fraught with temptation, don't blame God, he is not the cause of your temptation. Your evil desires are causing them. Recognize this. Avoid things that arouse your evil desires. And more importantly, get into God's word. Get into the Bible and stay in the Bible so that you can renew your mind and renew your desires. That is the most effective way to overcome temptation. You just destroy temptation. You eradicate it when your desires are changed. It goes away. Perfectly? No, but to a degree. And never forget that God is good all the time, and that his gifts are good and perfect all the time.
And don't forget to thank him for his goodness and his gifts. We're just coming out of Thanksgiving. We're going into another season where we can be insanely thankful, where we celebrate and focus on the birth of Christ. And yet, if you have not been born again, you need to be born again. But this is not something that you can cause because as we've studied today and learned, it is not a human endeavor. It is not something that you can bring about by your own will. It's not something that you can cause. Only God can cause you to be born again. And if this is something that you want, it is likely that God has already done it for you. Why? Because spiritually dead sinners are not interested in being born again at all. They're repulsed by it. It's stupid to them. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. If you want to be born again, I'm not a betting man, but I'd almost bet that you probably have been or you're close to it. The grace of God is at work in your life right now. Obviously, because it's not something that natural man wants. Your next step for you would be to repent of your sins and to repent and turn away from your unbelief. When I, when I tell you to repent of your sins, what I'm telling you is you have to take ownership over your temptation and sin. It's nobody else's fault. It's you. You will pay for your sins. Nobody else will. Unless, of course, you believe in Christ who paid for them. You're, you're never going to be able to blame your sin or temptation on anyone else, especially God. You need to take ownership of that. You need to recognize that you are the sinner. That you perpetuate the temptations and give in to them. Recognize those things. Recognize that of yourself. Don't pin it off on anyone else. Don't make that mistake. You must, you must acknowledge that you're a sinner. You must acknowledge that. And you must renounce your sin. You must turn away from it. And you must trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must believe that he lived for your righteousness, that he died to pay for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Believe that. Believe in the person and work of Christ. Confess your sins to him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And I would say begin to live for Christ because it's not a one-time deal. Live a life of repentance and faith. Put into practice what you learned today. Recognize God as the good one who gives only goodness and yourself as the helpless beggar who needs the grace of God. He will save you. And I would say, lastly, get plugged in here at the church. You can talk with an elder after this service. He'll help you get plugged in. 
We need this community. We need to do this together. God doesn't save people in an isolated fashion and send them out into the world without the community of believers. He saves people into his church and better yet, into local churches. You can be home right here. 